Christianity, Meeting Martial Arts. Exploring the culture, the adventure, and the impact of martial arts. That's what Kung Fu Podcast is all about. And I'm your host, T.W. Smith. Wow, it feels like it's been a while since I've sat behind the mic to talk with you. Since we've had the last episode, The Tao of Judo, uh, well, one, I began recording that book, as I had promised I would. Had a fantastic conversation with Sensei Ando Merzwa that uh, if you missed that, you can go over to his web pages and his podcast, Fight for a Happy Life, and listen to that. It was mostly a conversation about his experiences when he came over here to my martial arts school here in Raleigh, North Carolina. And yesterday, I had a wonderful time having a conversation with the host of the Whistle Kick podcast, Mr. Jeremy Lesniak. I had a wonderful time getting to meet and talk with him. When you get a chance, check out their gear and their podcast over at Whistle Kick. And now, let's talk about today's episode. This particular episode has been years in the making, and that is no exaggeration. I've been working on the research, having conversations with different folks uh, that I've met along the way. Uh, Ian Abernathy and I spoke about it a couple of years ago when I saw him up there in Franklin, North Carolina. The reasons that it has taken so long to put this together is, first, it was a personal topic. It's something I've had personal experiences in. Second, is that it is a sensitive topic. And third, is that I wanted to do a really good, thorough job for you as I presented you the story of Christianity meeting martial arts. You know that there's just about three to five topics, no matter where you are in the world, that when you breach the conversations on these topics, you are going to create some sort of passioned energy. The top three on the top of my head is politics, sex, and religion. As a precursor to this episode, I want you to first know that there is no effort in my part, and I hope you can tell by the tone of my voice, to persuade you or dissuade you from the pursuit of Christianity in any shape, form, or fashion. In fact, I'll tell you the same thing that was taught to me when I started the martial arts. It doesn't really matter to me what you believe. What does matter to me is that you practice being a good person, whatever your religious tones tell you that is, and you try to do your best in taking care of other people, you'll have my support. The goal of this episode is to share a situation that happened with me, and it continues to this very day. And I want to arm you, particularly you younger folks who are out there and one day going to be pursuing uh, your goals and maybe even a career in the martial arts, with an understanding and the ability to make an informed decision on a very, very personal matter. Through the process of organizing years of research, I put it together like a story as best I could. As we begin to look through the plots associated with Christianity and the martial arts, I want to introduce the scenes that you're going to see, kind of like chapter headings. Then I want to share with you a list of the most important researchers that were associated with this episode. The scenes that we're going to go through in Act 1 is you practice evil, and the second is the society of Jesus. In Act 2, you're going to have you don't look like a Christian. The next one is the inspector's visit. In Act 3, we don't do that. Then pirates and bandits, and closing that particular act with silky martial artists. 
When we get to Act 4, you're going to have direct incompatibility, control of rituals, where is your king and country, send your army, seeing the scales balance, and closing Act 4 with the big sword society. Then the whole episode is going to close in Act 5 with love your haters, buy a sword, Christians and self-defense study paper, and then the last, the legacy of the Christian missionaries. A quick run through of the guardians of research for this particular episode, Professor Bradley Davis, who wrote Imperial Bandits, Outlaws and Rebels in the China-Vietnam Borderlands, Professor Albert Wu, who authored From Christ to Confucius, German Missionaries, Chinese Christians, and the Globalization of Christianity, 1860 to 1950. A big contributor to this episode, Professor Don Baker, who is a member of the Department of Asian Studies at the University of British Columbia, also authored Catholics and Anti-Catholicism in Chosun, Korea. Then a wonderful man to listen to, and I've exchanged a couple of emails with, Professor Liam Brockie. He introduced a character to me that I never knew about and I have a great deal of respect for now uh, from the 16th and 17th century. And he wrote the book called The Visitor, Andrea Palmero and the Jesuits in Asia. And one other professor I'd like to recognize is the head of anthropology, Professor Peter Vanderdeer. A fairly regular contributor to this program, Mr. Sasha Matuzak. And he's going to have to be revved up into a future agent of action here at Kung Fu Podcast because I've referenced Sasha's work, I guess, starting back to episode three or four. And the last two references I want to recognize right up front is the Church of God Ministerial Board of Directors and as well as Mr. Mark McGee, who has authored several books, and you'll hear about some of those as we go along. So there are your introductions. Let's get started for something I have been excited to put together, but I wanted to do a good job, so I apologize it's taken so long. But here we go. Christianity, meaning martial arts. Act 1. You practice evil. Shane Sidney is our first character, and you need to know that that is not his real name. To protect his identity, I changed it for this story. In May of 2015, Shane Sidney writes me, and he says, One Sunday evening while sitting with a friend, he shares a struggle being a fundamentalist Christian. On occasions, I come across well-intended Christians who labels all martial arts as evil, and a Christian should not be involved in it. One went so far as to say that black belts represent evil. Well, years ago, Shane and I exchanged a couple of other emails at that point, and I told him I would put this together, and what I'd say that was May 2015. So here we are, May 2018. It's taken me literally three years to get this done. Well, back in the late 80s, early 90s, I had exactly the same experiences and even though I was just trying to find my way as a man my dad had died and I was trying to do better than I had been doing then I ended up running into what I would describe as just basically jackasses people who were going to throw you under the bus no matter what you did unless you were doing what they thought you should have been doing for example here's a guy Mr. Reverend Green 
and I'll let you make your opinion. He writes an article titled, Karate is Evil and Hated by God. Throughout his article, he attacks every Asian martial artist and then closes his route with, quote, Christians have no business being involved in the martial arts, even at the most elementary level. The only benefit that can be derived from the martial arts, exercise, is available in so many other spiritual harmless activities that there is no reason to open up yourself to the spiritual hazards such as homosexuality, demon possession, or other commission of sin that these martial arts techniques lead to. That is our antagonist, and he is my antagonist in this story because no one, in my opinion, should tell someone else what their spiritual path should be. It is a very personal, a very private, unless you decide to share it, part of your essence. And any jackass that's going to tell you that practicing martial arts is going to lead you to homosexuality, demon possession, and other commissions of sin, in my world, shouldn't really even call himself a reverend. And that brings us to the next scene, the Society of Jesus. In this one, we're going to have two characters pop up, Mr. Moteo Ricci and Roberta Nobili. We're going to be in Europe, 1560s, where the Society of Jesus is a scholarly congregation, roughly a student body of 300 of the Catholic Church, and it was founded in the 16th century. So it is really just kind of getting started as we are meeting our Jesuit missionaries. These guys pursue education, intellectual research, and cultural understanding. Once trained by their incredibly intelligent teachers, a Jesuit may be sent out on a mission not to change a culture of another country, like, for example, India or China, but to add a Christian core to that culture. The Jesuits, as they are being trained here at the Society of Jesus, are also armed with a couple of really important skills. They are scholars who take their education quite seriously. They are masters of routines, rituals, and excellent scribes recording the written word of their experiences, their thoughts, their pain, and their successes. Much of what you are about to hear came from handwritten documents from the Jesuits. The notes were recorded in a faraway place in a time long ago and then shipped back to Europe, where an entire library exists, and Professor Liam Brockie researched and translated these documents. He and I have shared some emails... And he is glad that you're hearing this story. Which brings us to the next scene. You don't look like a Christian. I want to introduce you to Mr. Roberta Nobili. He's Italian. He's around 28 years old. He was born in 1577 in Rome as the first son of an Italian nobleman. In 1596, against his family wishes, he joins the Jesuit mission. In 1604, after being trained, he leaves for India. It takes a while, and in May 1605, exactly 413 years ago to the month, he arrives in Goa, just off the Indian coast. When he arrives there, 
One of his peers is already there working as a Jesuit, Mr. Fernandez. One of the things that we know about Nobilly is that he is not a softy. He had a softer life already lined up for him. He was the first son of an Italian nobleman. He could have just stayed there and things would have been much easier. But no, no, he has to go against the family wishes. He has to enroll in Jesuit school. Then he has to get through that training and get on this boat ride, which you're talking 413 years ago, that can't be easy. Pirates are everywhere, not to mention the outstanding facilities and food that those old boats had. He gets there, and there's already a mess that you're going to hear about later. But he cannot lose sight of his mission. He is trying to establish a Christian core inside of this new cultural environment. And I'm sure after he was there for a little bit, it had to feel very much like that Apollo 13 problem. you got to get this big square into that smaller round hole and put it together in ways so that nothing gets lost. And to top it off, in case that's not difficult enough, you're on a timetable. In fact, just as a reminder, this is what that sounded like. Houston, we have a problem. The beginnings of brain well, I suggest you gentlemen invent a way to put a square peg in a round hole. Okay, people, listen up. People upstairs, handed us this one, and we got to come through. We got to find a way to make this fit into the hole for this. Using nothing but that. And that, in my mind, is what a Jesuit missionary was looking at when he arrived to a new place. You got to get this big square shaped Christianity module with its sharp angles into this round, equally firm culture, then bind it all together so that none of your mission leaks out. Well, no Billy takes what he finds in his situation. He cuts his hair, he gets Brahmin clothes, puts the threads on his shoulder, puts the sandalwood paste on his forehead, and begins to share his teaching, and he actually begins to get some followers. However, he strikes a major internal conflict with Fernandez and the Archbishop in Goa. He is accused of practicing idolatry, which in those days was a significant charge. There will be many times that you're going to make a decision that goes against the grain. Being a martial artist, for example, can definitely cause a rift. Or pursuing it as a career can come with its own support and a whole new set of challenges. Nobili has a mission. Fernandez has been there for a while in his traditional Jesuit black hat, black cloak, and that kind of thing. But he's not doing very well converting people over to Christianity. Nobili takes initiative begins having success, and this stimulates a real criticism from his own peers, and then that triggers the next scene, the inspector's visit. You're getting ready to be introduced to what I think of as an amazing character. Professor Brokey brings his historical life to us after translating some of his letters, and his name is Andre Palmero. Palmero is one of the former instructors at the Society of Jesus. In fact, he was one of the highest-ranking instructors there. He also commanded the curriculum of a topic that resonates with the problem that we are considering here. Palmero was trained, taught, and exercised in the real-world laboratory 
a topic called speculative theology. He was trained to address the sort of questions that Professor Brokey shares, such as, how much does a Jesuit do in China represent what a Jesuit means in Europe? Palmero's job is to make sure that as a Jesuit is submerged in some exotic culture far away from their home, they don't forget to be a Jesuit. Palmero was responsible for answering the same sort of questions that we have today, except we have them individually. He was trying to answer them for the whole society of Jesus across countries and culture for many men of the Jesuit practice. And one of the questions that Professor Brocky uses as an example is, quote, Where is the dividing line, speculatively, between what people do and what people believe? What their culture says they should do and they should believe and how those reflect beliefs, end quote. Those are the types of questions that someone trained in speculative theology would have been trained to weigh and address. Palmero is not handcuffed either, like many people in levels of administration are. He is not only given the responsibility, he is given the authority to carry out action. He can dismiss men from the Society of Jesus on the spot. He can move them around. He can have the Vatican route more money or resources to that particular mission. Or he can even request more missionaries to an area. Whatever it takes to be faithful to the mission and the Society of Jesus. Now, Professor Brocky's wonderful story of Andre Pomero is something I've really enjoyed. And all the links will be in your show notes when you're looking for them. But as I listen to the story, Palmero reminds me of that Catholic inspector, William of Baskerville, in Sean Connery's 1989 film, The Name of the Rose. William of Baskerville is amazingly well-trained for solving crimes, teaching and sharing scripture, thinking outside the box, and handling what can be a very delicate political situation for the church in the moment on the field. Here's a one-minute clip sample of Sean Connery's character, William of Baskerville, handling a very difficult and delicate topic about laughter. Some say laughter is sinful, and William of Baskerville disagrees. Brother Adermo said there, Yes, it's true. St. Francis was much disposed to laughter. Laughter is a devilish wind which deforms uh, the lineaments of the face and makes men look like monkeys. Monkeys do not laugh. Laughter is particular to man. As a sin, Christ never laughed. Can we be so sure? There is nothing in the scriptures to say that he did. And there's nothing in the scriptures to say that he did not. Why, even the saints have been known to employ comedy to ridicule the enemies of the faith. Aristotle devoted his second book of poetics to comedy as an instrument of truth. You have read this work? No, of course not. It's been lost for many centuries. No, it has not. It was never written. Forgive me, venerable Yorke. My remarks were truly out of place. One of the reasons I'm bringing this story to you is that even inside the church itself, amongst very educated people, there are arguments about what is right, what should one do, what is considered to be sinful or not. And this is inside the same 
group of people who believe theoretically the same thing. So as we're looking at this history of how Christianity meets martial arts, I wanted to make it clear that even if it didn't meet Asian martial arts, Christianity has its own challenges inside of itself. Well, just like William of Baskerville was in this abbey to explore a murder, Andre Palmero is arriving to Goa to investigate Nobili. Palmero arrives in the middle of this mess. Well, Fernandez and Nobili uh, not getting along together in regards to their outlook about how this is supposed to be delivered. The Archbishop of Goa has sided with Fernandez, and then Palmero sits down and meets with Nobili, and he believes him. And what is it that he believes about Nobili's argument? Well, Roberta Nobili makes the argument that the clothes that he is wearing, his haircut, the threads on his shoulders, the sandal paste on his forehead, are not symbols of religion. They are exclusively a political symbol. Fernandez disagrees, and so did the archbishop. They both said that his clothes looked like a Hindu priest, which at the time, a Hindu priest would be dressed just like Nobili. However, so would anybody else in that cast of people. So Nobili's argument that this was a political dress, not a religious dress, is what Palmero had to weigh, and he agreed after hearing with Nobili. And this triggers a full inquisition. Another archbishop is getting involved. The general superior of Rome is involved. We got a real good mess now. And the entire investigation, the debates throughout this inquisition, the results that Nobili was having through his creativity was all written up in the years to come and sent to the church for a final decision. And there in the early 1600s, the church sided with Nobili, saying that his dress, though he looked completely like a Hindu priest and a member of the Brahmin class, was a political statement, not a religious one. But Palmero's job after all that isn't over. We're going to be moving into the next scene that I titled, We Don't Do That. Well, soon after Palmero's finished up writing that investigation for Nobili, another Jesuit, Matteo Ricci, is stirring up church problems in China. Matteo Ricci is a very seasoned Jesuit. He arrived in Macau, China in 1582. And here we are at 1605, He's been there a while. Well, just like Nobili, Matteo Ricci is struggling to weave himself into society. There was only one thing at the Society of Jesus that they were taught not to wear, and that was silk. Well, guess what the early 17th century scholars dressed like? They all dressed in silk. So did members of the royal family. Eventually, he begins to take on the look of a Confucian scholar. One of the other things that Matteo Ricci did that set off some real big no-nos and in internal conflict is that he translated some of the scripture. In fact, he translated the word God into Chinese. And even his peers who were in Japan said that was a big no-no. So Matteo Ricci was out there for such a while that he actually took on a whole new level of responsibility the things that the Jesuits said that they would not do, which is to wear silk and not translate the scriptures and words like God into the cultural language. Which now that brings us 
to pirates and bandits. Because any time you're thinking of the 15th, 16th, 17th, 18th century, especially anywhere down in the South China, you have got to be aware that there were pirates and bandits everywhere. When I say everywhere, I mean everywhere. Travel by boat was essential, for example, for Palmero and Moteo Ritchie. If you were going to get through Macau, and if you don't know where it is, it's just to the west of Hong Kong, you were going to have to go through some of the roughest, toughest pieces of sea that you could possibly imagine. And in fact, you might even have to deal with one of the most famous of all the pirates, La Choi San, who is the pirate queen of Macau. She was considered one of the century's most powerful pirates that have ever lived. She cleaned out ships between Macau and Hong Kong, or you were paying for her protection. She is also presented here in this story because as friend of the Kung Fu Podcast program, Sasha Matuzak wrote, Chinese martial arts wouldn't be here today or what they are today without pirates and bandits. Martial arts as we know today was a tool to train and combat the presence and injustices presented by the pirate and bandit forces. He goes on to write, quote, Southern Chinese villagers had already come to rely more on militias than on government troops. The militias were mostly ragtag bands of villagers with a few old spears. But according to the contemporary sources available, some of the militias were led and trained by local martial artists. These kung fu heroes helped to form the core of southern Chinese martial arts as we know them today, not only through the organization of militias turned schools, but also through the creation of iconic characters that helped reinforce social values and communal bonds." End quote. This is where some of the research of Professor Bradley Camp Davis comes into play. He is a professor at Eastern Connecticut State University in the History Department. He wrote a book called Imperial Bandits, Outlaws and Rebels in the China-Vietnam Borderlands. He also wrote another one titled A Dead Priest, Violence in the Multilingual State in the China-Vietnam Borderlands. You want to be aware that many scholars, such as Professor Davis, reminds us that terms such as bandits, pirates, outlaws, rebels, and criminals, especially during this time era, are not what we think of them today. They were actually more of political terms. Professor Davis describes it as, the victors of war became king. The losers became the outlaws, pirates, and bandits. So while Matteo Ritchie was preparing his missions in China during the Ming Dynasty and using the Confucian silk robes and scholarly class to educate uh, people about his teachings and his mission, General Chi Ji Kong at the same time was writing our first martial arts training manual and training soldiers in martial arts to battle the very bandits and pirates that we're talking about right now. Now I've done several episodes on General Chi Ji Kong quick backdrop, he wrote one of the first martial arts manuals in 1560. He was trained in martial arts, he brought in other martial artists, they worked together with Shaolin, and they went out 
to fight the pirates and bandits throughout the countrysides. He lived from 1528 to 1588 during the Ming Dynasty. Sasha Matuzak writes about General Qigong's manual. It's a no-nonsense manual for organizing farmers and miners into disciplined units capable of defending the realm. He continues by writing that it's the 14th chapter. is titled The Fist Cannon and the Essentials of Nimbleness, where Qi declares that unarmed hand-to-hand combat is not suitable in warfare, but absolutely vital in drilling and training. General Qi considered strength and confidence as the major benefits of training martial arts. There has been speculation of why General Qigong had that chapter in his martial arts military treaties, but there were several trends happening at the same time, and they were coming together like this perfect storm that made martial arts training a very sensible thing to do. Some of those trends were, for example, the Japanese pirates were superior in close combat skills. There was an incredible lack of disciplined, trained Chinese troops. General Qigong had his own experience training in martial arts, and there was a real need to develop farmers into soldiers in order to carry out these battles. So this lays out this geographical and historical backdrop for you. And there are more martial arts connections to the southern Chinese region through the 15th to 19th century. But right now in our historical journey, we are looking into the mid-1600s with Matteo Ricci, which brings us to the scene, the silky martial artists. It would be valuable to understand that silk was extremely valuable in ancient China. Wearing silk was an important status symbol. At first, only members of the royal family were allowed to wear silk. Later, silk clothing was restricted to only the noble class. Merchants, farmers, and peasants were not allowed to wear silk. Matteo Ricci was obviously appealing to be in the higher caste, not one of the commoners. Well, when you think of martial artists, who were the martial artists that were wandering around the countrysides and the villages anyway? As Professor Davis explained, the victors were taking their seats in the administrative places. And they were hardly scholars many times. These were the folks who were just good at battle. The losers of those battles were not in the high political caste either. Which leads me to one of my pet peeves, which is when I see these pictures of martial artists, especially these self-acclaimed masters, wearing these fancy silk suits, showing off martial techniques, or sitting in some throne-like chair being served tea and having some young student kissing their ring like they were some form of an ancient emperor or an ancient king. It just about makes me want to vomit, especially since some of them I know personally today and I know where they came from and what they were doing in the martial arts back in the early 90s. Wearing your silks for prayer or special events, I get it. But to somehow connect it to some ancient form of martial arts training and that you are a royalty of it, to me, just looks stupid. And that is mostly because, just like we just discussed, the majority of real martial artists that were roaming the countrysides of the 1600s and 1700s and most of the 1800s 
were somehow connected to General Chi Kung, and these were not silk guys. They were the guys who were in tattered work clothes, busting their rear ends out in the fields, fighting off criminals, fighting off bandits and pirates beside their neighbors and their families. They operated with a code of family, not one of royalty. It seems apparent that the use of silk clothes, whether it was for the missionaries or even much later with these martial arts masters, was a way of creating a brand and separating oneself from the commoners or appearing to be an elitist. So after what No Billy did, wearing the clothes, shaving the head, putting the threads on the shoulder and the sandalwood paste, the church came up with a term for it, and it was called cultural accommodation, which brings us into the next scene. It is scene one titled Direct Incompatibility. In the plot line, followers are executed. As a summary of where we are now, we're in the middle of the hotbed of the beginning of the missionaries. It's also right in the middle of the peak of the pirates and bandits running rapid throughout the countrysides and on the sea. We also have farmers, commoners, villagers, and laymen who are seeking out instruction and assistance from martial artists just like you. General Chi is putting together a strategic and physical martial arts training program. The Ming Dynasty was the real peak of civilian Chinese martial arts and self-protection development. And as I had alluded to once before in a previous podcast, and Professor Ben Juckin stated when we were bringing the Bubishi back to its Chinese roots, if you really, really want to understand the philosophical foundation of Asian martial arts, then you really don't need to look at Buddhism or Taoism as your philosophical backdrops. But you would need to understand Confucian theory. In fact, you can say that is true for almost all versions of Chinese martial arts, Japanese, and Korean martial arts too, because their societies at that time were built around Confucian ideology. It was said that Confucian ideology was humanistic, human-focused, and natural-focused. Confucius does not spend much time speaking about death, the spirit world, or the cosmos, but he focuses on philosophies of upright behavior in everyday life and in actual society. That was a quote from SamuraiArchives.com. Also, at this part of our timeline where we're starting to get into the later 1600s, it's important to remember that before Christians had any problems with Asian martial artists, for example, in the U.S. or in Europe, martial artists were struggling interacting with the Christian missionaries on their own homeland, not religiously per se, but socially and politically. Let's say that you were one of these laymen, one of the martial artists that Matteo Ricci spoke to in China, one of the martial artists that were practicing. And if you were one of the farmers or laymen learning the martial arts at that time, politically you could get recognized as becoming very familiar with an imperialist. That's going to have its own problems, and they really escalate as we watch this unfold into the 1800s and the early 1900s. Then socially, mingling too much with people outside of your own class could be hazardous for your health, and in some cases hazardous for your family's health. We don't want to forget that China, for a very long time, used the sanction of nine familial exterminations, 
by which the offender and nine categories of his relatives, including parents, grandparents, children, and siblings, were killed as part of punishments. So the conflicts that you're about to hear about are not really religious conflicts at this time. As I just mentioned, Confucius didn't really have a spirit or God in order to argue with anyway. It's also important to remember that by most scholarly accounts, including Professor Peter Vanderdeer, who's the head of anthropology, that terms such as religion we have to be really careful with, particularly in this time, because this concept of religion as we know it didn't arrive into China until the missionaries got a real foothold there in the mid-1800s. And this brings me to highlight two professors' work, Mr. Albert Wu, who wrote From Christ to Confucius, and Mr. Don Baker, who wrote Catholics and Anti-Catholics. Professor Baker has a real letter, it's called the Silk Letter, from Mr. Wang Ji-yong, who was one of the first converted Asian Christians in Korea. There's also first-hand accounts of the encounters and clashings of Christians against the Asian culture, government, and philosophy, which brings us into the scene of controlling the rituals. The Asian governments, particularly China, Japan, and Korea, had a very strong and long Confucian base. And even though they did not have a religion or God per se, they did have some very strict rules about what you were supposed to be doing to be considered a moral person. For example, familial support and honoring your ancestors is a long part of Confucian teaching, and it's even mentioned in things like the Bubishi as well as the Wubeiji. Professor Baker writes that there were two primary tools to support these early Asian governments, and they were built around an ancient Confucian text. And basically it says you have to control two main things. First is the control of force, for example, your armies. And the second is the control of ritual. Now as a quick reminder, in the very beginning of this podcast, I mentioned that the Jesuits had several skills. And one of those is that they were masters of rituals. Well, in Asia, the government would decide not only which rituals were outlawed, but which ones were mandatory. The governments at the time really didn't care if you were a shaman or a practicing Buddhist, a Christian or Taoist for the most part. They, they didn't like it, but according to Professor Baker, they would tolerate it. What they wouldn't tolerate are certain things where they said, this is what you're going to do as far as a ritual. And one of those rituals was the ancestral memorial ceremony. This ceremony, as it was taught to me and as, as Professor Baker describes, is a time where a family member that has passed away is recognized. And there are things like a spirit tablet, where it's like a wood carving with their name in it and maybe a prayer uh, that was a favorite of theirs. You might have their favorite meal cooked and have flowers and incense lit. And you would have this setting at the table and you would bow to it in respect of an ancestor who has passed. The government has made it clear that this is a ceremony that you're going to do, and you're going to follow this pretty much to the letter. And what we have is a young, converted Asian Christian who is prominent in his community. His mother has passed away. There is a conflict because the archbishop who is in Beijing has stated to all Christians at that time that they are not supposed to bow to the spirit tablet, that he has decided that this is inappropriate. Well, the young man is having his memorial ceremony for his mom, 
and he's got everything there except for the spirit tablet. Somebody there rat thinks him out, and he is pulled in for questioning. Before we listen to the interrogation, remember that Confucian teaching has no God. It has no recognized soul, so to speak. If there is anything that would be like a Confucian soul, it would be your ability to take out you and show you with your relationships, with your family, with your others, with your community, with your country. That would be your soul in a Confucian context. So here we are. The young man has been pulled in at 1785 for not having a spirit tablet at his mother's ancestral ceremony. He's prominent and educated and a converted Christian. The interrogator says, Tell me about these Ten Commandments. And he starts to go through them. Thou shalt not have any gods before me. He continues, Honor thy mother and father. And he goes through all ten. And the interrogator says, we got a real problem here. First, your number four, honor thy mother and father, is supposed to be number one. And through your list of ten, where's your king? Where's your emperor? What about your country, your loyalty to your community? And since the man was prominent in his community, the government executed him to send a message. And this triggers a whole nother level of turmoil. Which brings us to the scene... Send us your army. This escalating conflict was not, again, really a religious one. It was more of a political one. That is emphasized when a Christian man puts pen to paper and he writes for the support and assistance from the superiors of the church. He writes and asks that they send a force to make his government listen because they are persecuting everybody at this time, not just the Christians, but the Buddhists and shamans, they're pretty much weeding out everything that they have tolerated up to this point. And if you see that movie, for example, Silence, the government is very tired of these type of things. Professor Baker reminds us that the Christians who were writing for assistance were not requesting for religious freedom either. They weren't offering to fight for the Buddhists or the shamans or the Taoists to have their voices. They were strictly asking for the preservation of the Christian religion in that area. Well, this letter that was written and sent out requesting military assistance was intercepted. And now you've ignited the situation to the level of treason, requesting a foreign force to come in, bring its military. That's something that if you did that today, Homeland Security will be knocking on your door. That brings me around to our original email where Shane Sidney had written in being questioned about whether or not he could practice this or that and still call himself a Christian. Hopefully by this point, I've demonstrated that you can go back for over 400 years and see a real long-standing fundamental argument where they've been bumping against one themselves for quite some time and they were also bumping in against a long-standing Confucian ideology. This understanding is not going to help the folks who are slinging the accusations. They're not meant to. This educational process is something that the more we can understand something, the history of something, and how it's been shaped and formed over the time, can provide us more understanding, which usually provides us more tolerances. As we've noted up to this point, that even the Christians were fighting amongst themselves as they were trying to find their way through these new cultures and new lands. 
the Asian Christian converts were actually getting into trouble inside of their own local communities. And now we're running up into the early to mid-1800s. The Opera Rebellion started in 1854. It included marketplace performers, martial artists associated with the opera troops, also many rebels from the Pearl River Pirates, plus destitute farmers and commoners. Sasha Matuzek at Fightland Vice writes, quote, Officials in martial arts societies in Guangzhou at this time were faced with a choice. Join the rebels in chaos or join the imperials in order. The elites and their martial retainers chose imperials in order. After that choice was made, the rebellion was crushed and the elites went on a violent purge of the underclasses, slaying up to a million boatmen, wanderers, broke people, performers, unaffiliated thugs, and martial artists." End quote. The Big Sword Society is described as a precursor to the Boxer Rebellion, which, as you know, had much more to do than just with Christianity. But if you were a Chinese Christian, martial artist or not, you had a target on your back. In the mid-1800s, as the Big Sword Society was growing, Christian missionaries, mostly Catholic, were also taking advantage of the weakness of the Qing government before it falls to expand their activities in various locations in the country. There were clashes between the Big Swords and Catholic communities, sometimes, interestingly enough, because bandits had converted to Christianity for protection. At this point, I'd like to share that irregardless of the choice you make, I believe that you have a responsibility to try and be a good person. That doesn't always mean that it's going to be well-received. And as I hope I have illustrated here, you may even have to go against the grain to find your space. When I went through my gauntlet of accusations, hypocrisy, and prejudices, there was more what I would call a sincere ignorance. And I say that because back then in rural parts of North Carolina, there was no internet, for example, and it was hard for a martial artist to find a martial arts book in North Carolina at that time, which isn't even close to the way it is today. Because today, as I tell my son sometimes, if you don't know something or don't understand something, it's usually because you don't want to know. The power of YouTube and Google, you can develop an understanding on practically any topic that you want. All you got to do is want to. Education is a big deal. And unfortunately, we're not talking to the folks who are slinging the accusations. In many cases, they don't want to learn. They just want to have their opinion and sling those rocks. But I'd like to share with you one of my personal recollections. And that is when I'd been practicing martial arts for a while now, and one of the elders of the church had told me that I was pretty much wrong for practicing uh, violence and practicing to protect myself and those types of things. It represented I didn't have any faith. And, and then shortly after that, I was told to go in there, bow my head, and pray for the soldiers who protect our country. And to be honest with you, I had a serious conflict at the moment. It was not with the soldiers, but with me. I couldn't understand how is it that this guy is telling me that I'm not allowed to protect myself, but to get my rear end in there, bow down, and start praying for the folks who are protecting the country. And I had to work through that. I came to the point to where I was perfectly comfortable 
and happy to pray for those folks who are uh, protecting our country. I grew up in a military town around Fayetteville, North Carolina, Fort Bragg, and for those military families that were left behind as their loved ones were out in harm's way. But that was an example of something I had to deal with back in the early 80s because you have to remember at that time we had desert storms starting to come around too. So many of us knew people who were directly out there in harm's way. Another situation I had experienced is what if someone comes up to you and says, it's un-American not to be a Christian? How can you call yourself an American and not be Christian? This country was founded on Christianity. I would like to arm you with some of the same things we have to deal with in the martial arts. Understanding a myth when you hear it. The myth that is still sometimes taught in schools to this day is that the United States was built on Christianity. And at listfirst.com, they have a whole laundry list of these myths. Some of them really shocked me. But they write, for example, quote, Thomas Jefferson and Benjamin Franklin were both believed to be deists who don't follow the Bible explicitly, but assume that there's a God because nature is so great. George Washington most likely followed pantheism, which is the belief that nature is God. John Adams was a Unitarian, an offshoot of Christianity that believes Jesus was a great guy, but not God's son. Alexander Hamilton was a typical Christian, but not until much later in his life, after his son was killed." So the message is clear. You do not have to be a Christian to be a good, loyal member of the American country. I'd like to remind you that there are many versions of religious bullies, like the one I mentioned in the beginning of this podcast, Reverend Green, who wrote, The only benefit that can be derived from the martial arts, exercise, is available in so many other spiritual, harmless activities that there is no reason to open up yourself to the spiritual hazards, homosexuality, demon possession, or other commission of sin that these martial arts techniques lead to, end quote. You want to learn to be comfortable in your own skin and recognize when someone is just trying to escalate a situation to push you around. You do not have to have those arguments. Instead, to my next point, find resources that listen. Hopefully you are not seeking external approval. You are looking for people that will listen. For example, the Andre Palmeros of the world, who could allow you the opportunity to be yourself, share yourself, explain yourself, make your way in the world, give you some honest and fair feedback along the way too. I would recommend an excellent resource is Mr. Mark McGee from Grace Martial Arts. He has written several books on this topic, and if you're having questions about it, he's a great place to look for it. You'll find his link in the show notes. Another excellent reference is Mr. Timothy Nichols, who wrote, By a Sword, Toward a Theology of Civilian Self-Defense. It was presented at the National Teaching Pastors Conference, and it takes a critical thinking approach to the argument and starts with an interesting position. If you believe that God made the world and everything in it, and that the Bible is the Word of God, then these two things should be parallel. They should not contradict one another. If they do contradict one another, then one of your assumptions is off. Assuming that that is correct, 
Nickel presents why practicing martial arts and self-defense is acceptable, but he also goes into supportive strategies and techniques that I found should be well considered. The link is on the website. You may also want to look at the Christian and Self-Defense Study Paper, which I really enjoy this. It was approved by the Ministerial Board of Directors in 2015 and just recently updated in 2018. You can download it when you log in. It's a fantastic essay about self-protection. It uses scripture, real observations, stories of the Bible, plus a critical thinking process to teach you how to protect yourself as a Christian. For example, it says, one, as a Christian, you are obligated to be aware of your circumstances. Two, you are to remove yourself from trouble as much as you can. Three, you are not to encourage violence. De-escalate whenever you can. As a Christian, you should avoid violent encounters through awareness, diverting, and de-escalation. And this is a great moment to take a pause for all of us. So if you think about it for a minute, what is being asked of you to do as far as a Christian approach to self-defense isn't much different than what we've spoken about many times here on the program. It's just coming to it from a different perspective. If you start going to a martial arts school or a seminar, it is saying that it's going to take you through a very practical self-defense type of training. You would want to make sure that it includes avoiding the situation, and I don't mean just the lip service, but you actually have some exercises to walk through it. I was actually in a conversation with one of the students the other day where many times the martial artists say, well, if you're in this situation, run. However, it is absolutely obvious that the person who's telling you to run and using that as a technique to escape the problem couldn't sprint 100 yards. It ignited a topic that perhaps we should have a civilian martial arts PT test where you know you could do at least do one pull up you can run 250 yards at top speed that you could actually hit the ground and get back up to your feet within a second or so you know these are the types of things that as a civilian martial artist you really actually need to have and as we compare that to what they're recommending as far as a Christian approach to self defense there's not a lot of difference you could even go back and listen to the episode where I highlighted Peter Constantine's article the one-yard rule, and the egg timer, where we looked at posturing, positioning, not having too many tools on your tool belt, and making a swift decision on which tool you're going to use. These are the types of things that you'd like to have as part of your tactical and strategic plan. These are the types of things that you want to make sure that you train regularly to keep those skills polished off. The central question of this paper is can Christians use force to ward off an attacker or protect themselves or a loved one? And their response is, yes, they can. Then it goes on to give you in detail under what circumstances might this occur and how or why a Christian should engage in such a struggle. In summary, it says, quote, If confronted with a situation as we've been considering in this paper, a Christian should flee if at all possible. If fleeing is not an option, the use of defensive, non-lethal force, for example, restraining the perpetrator, is within the proper scope of a proper Christian response. Nothing in the scriptures that we have considered would preclude this option. However, 
The teaching from God's Word confirms that Christians should not possess weapons for the intended purpose of using them to cause harm to another human being. End quote. As I'm pulling this to a close, I'd like to tell you that if it wasn't for Professor Liam Brockie's work, you may have never heard of Andre Palmero, an incredibly wise and real man. On the other hand, there are statues today that recognize Matteo Ricci and Roberta Nobili for their work going against the grain, putting themselves out there, and bringing Christianity into these other cultures. And here at the end, if I was going to close with any one thing, this is something I use regularly for myself and as part of a regular meditation as well as a prayer. It is to remember the great Shawnee Indian chief Tecumseh's prayer, where he said, Live your life so that the fear of death can never enter your heart. Trouble no one about their religion. Respect others in their view and demand that they respect yours. Love your life. Perfect your life. Beautify all things in your life. Seek to make your life long and as purpose in the service of your people. Prepare a noble death song for the day when you go over the great divide. Always give a word or a sign of kindness when meeting or passing a friend, even a stranger when in a lonely place. Show respect to all people and grovel to none. When you rise in the morning, give thanks for the food and for the joy of living. If you see no reason for giving thanks, the fault lies only in yourself. Abuse no one and no thing, for abuse turns the wise ones to fools and robs the spirit of his vision. When it comes your time to die, be not like those whose hearts are filled with the fear of death, so that when their time comes they weep and pray for a little more time to live their lives over again in a different way. Instead, sing your death song and die like a hero going home. If you've made it all the way here to the end of this podcast, thank you very much for the opportunity to share a lot of the history and the research. Three years of the making of me trying to put this together in a way that I felt like would be presentable, educational, and hopefully something that you could use if and when you ever wanted to. If you enjoy Kung Fu Podcast, you can go to kungfupodcast.com forward slash support and find a number of different ways that you can help me keep this program moving forward. Remind yourself that as you're moving forward, if you're practicing to be a good person and a good martial artist, there are times where you're going to have to go against the grain. You may take some heat from people who are above you or around you. Engage yourself and assess yourself with people who you respect and keep moving forward. Go out, practice every day, keep yourself safe, keep your family safe. And I look forward to hearing from you. It would mean a lot to me that if this episode meant something to you in any shape, form, or fashion, I would like to hear from you. Take care, and I'll be talking with you again real soon.